Hi, and welcome to Fashion Talks, a podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. I am your host, Donna Bishop. And today I'm joined by Christine Carlton. Christine has extensive experience and expertise in the area of luxury retail. Prior to launching the September in 2013, she was the VP of Accessories at leading luxury retailer Holt Renfrew, where she was for 17 years. Christine in the September, which is an online destination for luxury shoes and accessories, have been featured in a number of media outlets, including the Globe and Mail, Hello Magazine, Flair, the Huffington Post, and the Financial Post, pardon me, HGTV, among others. Thank you so much for joining me, Christine. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So before we get into our discussion around online shopping and the evolution of retail and some interesting things that have happened, I start all the podcasts with, can you please share with me a story about how fashion changed your life? So that's kind of my dramatic way of asking about a moment where fashion had a real impact or where you just noticed the influence of fashion. Mm, I love that question. Well, I mean, fashion must have changed my life at some point because I decided to work in the fashion industry. But I would have to say that, um, you know, as a child, I was one of these young teenagers that bought Vogue every month and tore out the pages and there was no wallpaper in my room other than the pages of Vogue. How um, lucky for your parents. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I, I actually put it over top of the wallpaper, so they weren't thrilled, but they didn't mind. Um But I think when fashion changed my life was when I realized that, you know, fashion is more about self-expression and feeling comfortable with yourself. And I think that, you know, as a teenager growing up, we're so influenced by what our friends do and who's wearing what and how you want to look. And, you know, not to date myself, but I grew up in the 70s and, you know, there was, you know, hippies and then it went into goth and I didn't really explore all of those trends. At one point, I went, I know exactly what I feel comfortable in. And then, you know, that's when you start to feel comfortable in your own skin. I totally agree. I totally agree. So before we get into our discussion around online shopping, can you tell me a little bit about the September and, you know, what what made you want to embark on a new retail journey when you had an illustrious career at a, at a really fancy and wonderful retailer here in Toronto? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I get asked that quite often. People say to me, you had every woman's dream job. Why would you leave that? And uh, it really came down to the fact that You know, when I was traveling for work on my buying trips, we traveled all over the world and, you know, we'd interact with the other retailers and, you know, I was just exposed to so many fascinating things that other retailers were doing. And I started to feel that there was nothing dynamic going on in Canadian retail. And, you know, so much of that was digital. Mm -hmm and online. And I just felt that I had relevant experience to be the one to do that. So we really set out to offer an exceptional shopping experience digitally. And we set out to become the four seasons of the retail industry. I love that. We really wanted to combine the convenience of digital with the, you know, high touch um, experience that you would you would have, whether you're in person or online. So you are really in the eye of the storm that I find so fascinating that we're going to talk about today, because in a relatively short period of time, we as a as a as a Western society have gone from 
really having to make sure we could touch and feel a product before we bought it to being comfortable buying it through a digital experience where we had to wait to have it shift, shipped to even going as far as buying it pre-production where we've had to wait quite a long time for it. And I find that phenomena quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, I, was, I agree. I mean, that I think is really what excited me about the shift in shopping. Um, you know, I, I always like to liken it to the advent of department stores. You know, in the last turn of the century, all of a sudden these massive department stores popped up before them. People shopped with their dressmaker, they shopped with their hat maker, with their glove maker, and everyone said, nobody's going to shop for all the same items under one roof. It was just unheard of. We take for granted that that was really quite a revolutionary disruption. To have yeah. many sectors under one roof was radical. Yeah, and in some instances, it was men's and women's under one roof. You, you said it. it. It was revolutionary. So, you know, and then retail's been the same for 100 years since then. And so it's time for disruption and people are ready for a change. And, you know, we were so excited to be the ones to offer an alternative shopping experience. But, um, you know, I really think that life happens so quickly now. You know, that's what's happened. So, you know, we've had e-commerce for 10 to 15 years. But now, as you say, we've kind of moved on to the next evolution of that. It's not a hundred year uh, experience. Mm -hmm. And people are now willing to pre-order and wait for product. Well, let's take it back a little bit, because if we look at the history of like when when the digital landscape landscape began for shopping. Uh, Certainly, we could go back to Amazon, you know, 1995, starting with books and whatnot. But for the purposes of our discussion, because we are going to focus on the luxury market, because that's where your Mm -hmm. wheelhouse is, Mm -hmm. um, Net-A-Porter really broke a lot of barriers for people, but it certainly wasn't a slam dunk off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for the founder, Natalie Massonette. Um, she was really a trailblazer, and she was one of the first to start an e-commerce company, and she had her work cut out for her. I think that very early on, the luxury brands did not embrace e-commerce, and they really felt that to have a luxury experience, you needed to have an in-person experience. And I think what happened with Netaporte at the outset is they managed to get, you know, expensive luxury-ish brands, but they were sort of B and C yeah, emphasis level. on the ish. Yeah, <laughs> ish. Um, but I actually think that positioned them as sort of a fashion forward leading brand. You know, it was almost by default, you know, because she couldn't get the luxury brands, she presented something that wasn't everywhere. And it was really interesting and a lot of emerging designers. And so that's sort of to this day how they're known. Um, they picked the best of the best of emerging brands. Well, and the other challenge that they had because they were so at the forefront of the of the industry was having to deal with issues of security and getting people comfortable laying out their credit card information, laying out their personal billing information so that the sale could actually happen. Like that was a really real uh, obstacle for people. Yeah, that was a very foreign concept when she set out. And, you know, starting any business, you will hear it's very difficult to change consumer behavior. So not only is she doing something new on a new channel, she's trying to change consumer behavior. And she did, you know, hand in hand with Amazon. Um, But they really were at the forefront of e-commerce. Who are some of the other individuals or other brands that you really see as benchmarks in moving the needle for luxury online experiences? I would 
say in the fashion industry, uh, Burberry comes to mind. They adopted, um, you know, digital e-commerce and digital marketing very, very early on. Um, Their CEO, the former CEO, Angela Earhart, she actually had her team uh, partner up with Apple. And Smart. they really, really embraced it. I mean, they were just immersed. They did job swaps. You'd go to London and, you know, the people that you normally met with were in California at Apple. And so they really took it to a whole nother level. I read a great quote that she said, which was, I grew up in a physical world and I speak English. The next generation is growing up in a digital world and they speak social. Yes. Very well said. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. And I think what's so interesting with the Burberry story is it's not like their brand was at its acme when they started digital. Like Burberry was kind of on the downward trend a little bit in terms of their luxury brand awareness and positioning in the marketplace. Yeah, it was. It was not, when you think of a luxury brand, Burberry doesn't pop to mind. You know, it didn't before all of this. And I think with, um, you know, partnering with digital, it really brought them to the top of the luxury realm. And, and it put them on the map. You know, they were the first to broadcast their runways live and customers could pre-order right from the runway. Um, you know, they, in their own right, were sort of revolutionary with adopting digital commerce. Well, and they were one of the first to use uh, Twitter's shopping platform and they used Instagram as a pioneer before other luxury brands as well. Like they've really, they really took her quote about the next generation speaks yeah. social uh to a very exciting And place. I think their success speaks to the fact that customers were ready for this. You know, shopping has been the same for so long. They're ready for something new and exciting. Well, and that's interesting because you're absolutely right. And some of the things I think that indicated that we were ready for something was certainly the issue of convenience. Mm-hmm. You know, we we all work uh, we all work hard. Uh, the workday now ebbs and flows in you know starting later or going longer. Do you see that in trends with your with your clients in terms of when they shop? Yeah, absolutely. And and I sometimes actually say it's not so much about convenience; it's more about avoiding aggravation. <laughs> you know, these days that's really what it is. I think people are busy. You know, they have very demanding careers. They have families. And we typically see that the bulk of our orders come in um, in the evening, so between 8 p.m. and midnight. So that tells you, you know, they've had a busy day. They've done what they needed to do, um, you know, and that's their that's their window of time for themselves. And probably they're sitting in front of the TV, <laughs> Netflixing. Yes, and one uh, of the many and, screens. <laughs> yeah, and, and shopping at the same time. Well, I think, you know, that, yes, there were so many factors that were making, you know, the work the workday being one of them that were making things ripe for a disruption in the shopping experience. As I was doing some research and preparing for this, an assumption I had was that part of the success of an online retailer was being able to reach people in like the farthest corners Mm -hmm. of the globe. And what I discovered was it's in fact still the urban centers that are the majority of where the majority of online sales come from. So being in close proximity to a bricks and mortar store of the brand you're shopping or of a multi-brand retailer that might carry the brand you're shopping is not necessarily the barrier. No, I don't think so. You're absolutely right. When we set out, we thought, you know, we'll capture, you know, the four corners of Canada. And, um, 
certainly our busiest, um, you know, uh, areas are from urban centers, as you say, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary. And And why do you think that is? Like, I find that fascinating because it's not access to the product then that is that is the issue. I think it's convenience. I think, you know, that's not to say we don't have customers that are in the East Coast and rural Alberta. We do. We have them as well. I just think the populated destination dense population (laughs) density is such that you know there's more people in the cities and so you're just bound to have more orders and I think that they're busy you know it's harder to get in your car and drive downtown Toronto or drive downtown Vancouver it's aggravating you know they're busy busy populated places and if you can shop from the comfort of your couch why wouldn't you want to do that Truly. And so once now that we've eliminated aggravation, uh, what are some of the other factors that go into having a really successful online experience? And I guess to define success, we're talking about one, making the sale and making sure people even right. make more than one sale. Yeah. But, but you know, from your experience, what are the, the critical elements that create that high touch, that really personal experience for someone? So it's, it's, uh, a whole bunch of things and they all sort of ladder up to making sure a customer has a phenomenal shopping experience with us and you know for us it starts with when they visit as soon as they land on the website our language is very polite and welcoming mm-hmm. um, we have just re-platformed our website so we have a brand new website that's really easy to shop beautiful you know beautiful imagery is just a given yeah people Um, won't tolerate bad photography exactly so navigation is very easy and by easy do you how how do you mean like is it is it obvious is it about how many clicks like what makes it easy so right you know for us on the home page we have shop shoes shop handbags shop jewelry It's very clear. It's very clear. There's no, (laughs) you know, there's not a ton of content on our homepage. I think a lot of websites do that. And content is very important to our business, but it's not on the homepage. That just to me is overwhelming to a consumer. And we make it simple. Really, they're visiting our site because they want to see what product we have selected uh, for our consumers. And so we want them to be able to see that. And then it's just how we categorize it. So you can shop by size, you can shop by color, you can shop by category. And we do categories right down to modern bridal. So if you need a wedding shoe, we have handpicked the best of the best. And do you think that there is an advantage or that clients and consumers are drawn to like there's a balance of having options but not being overwhelmed by choice yeah definitely we call that the tyranny of choice and we're very careful um that we avoid that because you know i think retailers need to stand for something they have to have a point of view and they have to be able to communicate with their product that they know who their customer is and that they have spent a lot of time picking the best styles from each brand um, so that a customer feels confident that if they're shopping with us, they know they're getting something that's fresh and relevant and, you know, suits their lifestyle. That's one of the, you know, evolutionary kind of loops that I think you can kind of see clothing. Like if we go back to your discussion about the department store a hundred years ago, uh, it was probably the seduction of having so much in one place. That was part of the initial appeal. And then people started to experience the tyranny of choice. (laughs) And we saw a trend in smaller boutiques and an emphasis on curated collections. And it was overwhelming to people 
to walk through a huge department store and, you know, just want to end up in the fetal position because there were so (laughs) many things to choose from. And I wonder if we're seeing that a little bit online as well, like we're moving away from places like even perhaps a net porte because I know they're starting to do more curated, smaller mm-hmm. collections, to places like the September that take some of the, that know your customer so well that you can take that element of too much choice and really eliminate it from their aggravation checklist. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. You know, we refer to our product as thoughtfully chosen. You know, we spend a lot of time picking each piece and making sure that we know it's what our customers want. And I think it goes back to this movement towards exclusivity and specialness. You know, we we live in a culture where everybody has everything and you reach a point where you want to stand out and you want to be different. So you don't want to show up at a party and someone's wearing the same dress as you or the same pair of shoes. Yeah. So that's sort of how we, we try to approach it. And, and we feel with our product, there has to be a reason for being. You know, we never buy just a basic black shoe. You might need a new black shoe, but ours will have a little bit of embroidery or it'll be a metallic black. There's just something special that makes you feel good about it. So we've got the product selection kind of category down and you've talked about the the easy navigation. There's such a contract of trust between an online retailer, I think especially because you mm-hmm. don't have that face-to-face personal interaction um, in terms of securing the sale and getting people comfortable giving you their their hard-earned money. Mm-hmm. How do you achieve that trust in the digital landscape? So we go about it in a few different ways. One I mentioned, you know, we make sure that the website is very welcoming. Everywhere you look, it says, please contact us. We have live chat. Our phone number is everywhere. And when you phone us, you do not get voicemail. You will always, always get a live person. And do people call? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, you I always mean, wonder, right? Yeah, they, they do. They call and they like to tell us their fashion problems and they like our help and our guidance. And we love that because we get to know our customers that much better. Um, and we get to know their lives. You know, we know when they have a birthday coming up or when their daughter's birthday is coming. And, um, and we try to do special things for that. But we really... Um, you know, we just try to interact with them in, in as I, I call it, a high-touch way. So, you know, we also have email, of course. Mm-hmm. A lot of customers communicate via email if they don't want to call us. And, you know, they've got to know the team. And so sometimes they'll ask for someone in particular. And, and they build a relationship. So even though we're digital, we still see it as relationship building. You know, I have a team. Some of them are personal shoppers and they work very closely with their clientele and they get to know them. So even though it's digital, they get to view our product digitally. I think that there is a human interaction once they make that decision to purchase. I think that's probably something that initially it was assumed that people wouldn't need that personal Mm -hmm. interaction. But I think most brands would agree that it's part of their special sauce. If it's something that they have incorporated into their customer service model, it's a deal breaker in terms of their success. Yes, yes. Nobody wants to interact with an anonymous brand. You know, we, you know, we've heard from our customers that they like that, you know, we're not a huge company, that there's a face behind the brand. Um, And as I said, they've got to know our team. 
team. And we even go so far as to ship every order with a handwritten thank you note. Lovely. So again, there's that personal touch. They feel like somebody took the time to wrap their package and ship it and to send them a note and to thank them for their business. Well, it's about sh- exchanging the value, right? Yeah. Like not only do you are you showing that you value their business, but I think you're also communicating that you value the item that you are selling to them. Yes, correct. We get emotionally attached to each one. When customers ask, you know, which one should I buy? You know, I always say, I don't know. They're like all my babies. I picked them all, right? So I don't know. (laughs) And do you have a sense, even just anecdotally, of what percentage of your clients actually reach out personally? Like, do you think it's like maybe half or? No, that's a good question. Um... I would say more than half, yes. Uh, There are customers that, you know, interact with us independently, and we don't know them other than writing them their thank you card. Um, But for the most part, I would say at some point along the journey with us, you know, if they order a wrong size, they reach out because they need to do an exchange. And we intentionally did not automate the returns so that we could, you know, again, connect with our customer and get to know them. Um, so I, I would say more than half. And we also, over the last little while, have done uh, various events at interesting locations. We've done one downtown Toronto at a restaurant, The Fifth. We did one at the Four Seasons in the Presidential Suite. We have oh, a pop-up beautiful. right now. Yeah, it was beautiful. We have a pop-up in Yorkville Village. And that gives our customers an opportunity to meet us and to interact with us and our brand and the brands that we carry. And we find there's so much value in that. Um, some customers will follow us and they're sort of interacting with us but haven't shopped. Right. And once they meet us, they go, okay, I get you guys. And that kind of just gets them over that last barrier. So there still is a synergy between the digital marketplace and the physical marketplace, certainly in your experience. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that, you know, we don't need to call it bricks and mortar anymore. I call it experience. And yes, you maybe need four walls for that. Um, But as I said, for us, it's not been, you know, a storefront retail. It's been a restaurant. It's been a hotel. Um, We've done something at a spa with our customers. And so to me, it's really about engaging with your customers in different ways, keeping them excited. And that's also why we do some of the content that we do. You know, we can't have events in every city across Canada. We try. We've done some in Vancouver. Um, But that's sort of where the content comes in, um, in that we make it exciting for our customers. We share interesting things with them. We share travel stories. We share fashion tips. And, you know, we're, we're, we're real people building a brand and we want them to know that. I want to touch on the content a little bit because I think if you go to almost any digital e-tailer, you're going to see a blog or a content or, you know, an e-zine, some sort of element there. It seems to be a very important part mm-hmm. of the whole mix in terms of the strategy of an organization. Do you, have you found that? And was that something you had from the get-go? And what, like, how do you, how do you create your content? Or, do you sit there and write it yourself? Like who, how do you, how do you decide what to, what to create? So yes, content is very, very important. Um, and when we started the business, we knew that that would be a very important element of it. We wanted to portray, um, you know, a bit of a a luxury lifestyle, but not so over the top that people couldn't relate. And so we really just started, um, you know, with 
Canadian women, to be honest. Right. We wanted to show real people. You know, for us, we really believe that, you know, we just want to be ourselves. We want to show an authentic brand that really believes in, you know, building a, a, a good brand and um, doing something for our customers. And so what we did is we found Canadian women that were doing interesting things and portrayed them. We showed how they wore our shoes. We didn't want to use celebrities or models. Right. We wanted Canadian women, and we would tell their story and also share their style at the same time. And we got so much positive feedback from that that we've continued to do that. We've done it since day one, and we still do it. We call it style profiles. And, you know, I am just... a, a I, I, I'm fascinated by people. Mm-hmm. So this was right up my alley. I thought, oh, I love meeting different women and sharing their stories. Um, so that's been really, really important to the brand. Well, and I think storytelling is so important. I mean, storytelling has always been a part of of a brand's existence. I mean, I think it used to live more in the advertising sector, like if we look back to, you know, the Mad Men days, you know, it was mm-hmm. the storytelling around advertising. And now we have storytelling around content like what you do at the September Mm -hmm. and I think kind of the next layer of that which is a nice segue into the whole the whole phenomena of buying something pre-production like via a site like Kickstarter or Indiegogo like this to me is just another fascinating step in the evolution of how we how we shop and storytelling is obviously a big part of that because if you go to a, a Kickstarter mm-hmm. campaign, there's like the story goes on for reams and reams and reams <laughs> and there's a video and who they are and stuff like that. But that we got to a point where we are willing to buy before it's made, I find so, like I just find it so interesting. I know. It is. And I think that speaks to how people want to interact with brands differently. I think that they're willing to support a company that's, you know, just up and running now because they want to, you know, in a lot of cases, these Kickstarter brands, um, you know, are doing something interesting and different. In some cases, they're charities. In some cases, they're not, you know, relevant to the fashion industry. You know, they are maybe creating a product and customers are willing to fund the production of their product because they want to be a part of something. Right. They want to be a part of something totally. that's new and different that probably nobody else will have because it's not sold in a retail store. So they feel like they have direct access. Well, and if you go on to Kickstarter and just type in fashion, like it's hundreds of fashion campaigns that are there right now, like everything from perfect I make air quotes perfect. <laughs> White shirts to outerwear to all kinds of varied there's a footwear to things in wool or silk or from different parts of the world. And the top out of the top ten Kickstarter campaigns of twenty sixteen, four of them were apparel or accessory based, which I find fascinating. Like we're just willing to make that leap of trust mm-hmm. that much more dramatic. Yeah. And we're willing to wait that much longer. And two things really came to mind about this. One is I think another factor, and tell me if you've had this with the September, is the whole notion of peer reviews. Mm-hmm. Like there is this, like we now keep all of, we, we as a consumer group are the accountability to make sure brands and companies are maintaining things the way they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. So if you get a bad review, be it on Yelp or if you are if you're giving uh, comments under different brands, uh, I know some websites do that, some don't. And people say, oh, this is like this sucks. That's become a real part of the success of a digital 
success yeah. story, I think. Yeah, c- consumers have all the power now. Uh, that's just the world that we live in. It used to be brands and companies dictated everything, but now customers have a voice. And it's a very transparent voice. And, you know, they like to be heard and they like to share their opinions. So that's a big part of this digital world that we live in are, you know, brands having to deal with customer reviews. Yeah, it's no longer the customer is always right. It's the customer's going to tell me how to run my business. And yes, <laughs> oh, yes, and they do. As a business owner, you get a significant <laughs> amount of unsolicited advice. But um, yeah, I think that customers care. Really, that's what you, you will get a complaint for sure. Someone that just had a bad experience. But at the root of it, people usually only complain because they care. Right. That's a very, I mean, that's a very positive way of, of looking at it. But I think you're right. I think people don't complain if they don't, if, they, if it doesn't matter right. to them. Yeah. They want to make a difference. I think that they do it to be constructive and, you know, to help brands be better and, you know, to, to, to just improve Getting back to something you said earlier about um, eliminating aggravation, I think an aggravation that digital initially eliminated was also the nature of waiting in terms of like waiting in line. Like our t- we didn't need to wait um, to make the purchase the same way. So there was that shift from having to wait in line at the checkout to I don't need to wait. I can make my purchase and then it's done. Mm-hmm. But now we are waiting for the actual item. And I think this is interesting because there's sites like Moda Operandi, mm-hmm. which has, did Moda inspire you a little bit in terms of the September? A little bit. They were starting just as we were starting. So we were sort of following them more from a, a startup perspective. And do you want just to give a bit of background what Moda Operandi is in case people haven't had the pleasure of scrolling through their beautiful pictures. Oh, yes, it's <laughs> stunning. Um, so Moda Operandi, I would say, is very similar to Net-A-Porte, except the, um, the business model is different in that customers can buy direct from the run- runway shows. So Moda Operandi facilitates pre-ordering uh, pretty much six months before a product will come in. Yeah, you put a deposit and then you yeah. pay it in full when it's ready to ship, I yeah. believe. Yeah, exactly. So that's interesting to me because then you are, you're waiting, you've even laid out money and you're waiting. With Kickstarter, you could wait months. Like you could put money down in April and it says, you know, estimated shipping December. So we're willing to wait. So that that got me thinking about, you know, what do we gain from waiting? And another way to describe waiting in this context, I think, is delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. And we all know the stories of, um, I forget the scientist, I'll put it on the website, but the experiment with kids of you can eat the marshmallow now or you can eat the marshmallow (laughs) later. Just talking about that with my kids. (laughs) Um, But there there is a sense of increased pleasure and increased value when we delay gratification and we wait for something. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking about, has that translated into our shopping where because we've lived in such a fast world where we could get anything we wanted immediately, has that now kind of foreign experience of delaying our gratification for something made it an appealing part of the process? Yeah, it's a tough one to really wrap your head around and understand the reason, like what motivates people to do that. I think in the Kickstarter instance, I I find it particularly interesting because in some cases, you know, someone will choose to fund a product 
and they might not even get that product. You know, if 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 it's a bag they funded, they might get a keychain as a thank you as their reward. Right? You so, might not. It's so yeah. absolutely. So so you, I, I always try to figure that out, and I still don't haven't really gone. Okay, that's why they're doing it, because it's very strange. I think, as I said before, it's really because they want to feel like they're part of something. Whether they get the actual product, they feel more like they're supporting a company. Um, and I think in the instance of moda operandi and shopping for luxury fashion that maybe you get six months later, I think there's that element of specialness to it. Um, but I also think that it's, it, again, it speaks to, you know, having done something different and special. You know, you can say to your friends, oh, well, I bought this for moda operandi and I won't get it for six months. Like to everybody, right. it seems very special. Um and I think you're right. Based on the world we live in, fast fashion, you know, we have to get it today. We have to get it yesterday. That's sort of the luxury of it now is to pay for something that you actually have to wait for. Which I think probably also consciously or unconsciously must speak to the quality of the thing that we are waiting for because we are, there must be workmanship and craftsmanship that goes into it if it's going to take a while for it. Yes. I mean, to a good get e- to us correctly or incorrectly. But. Right. Right. <laughs> and a good example I'll share from the September is just recently we um, ran an event with one of our brand partners, Alexander Berman, and we were doing one of his iconic shoes and we were able to customize it for our customers. Oh, that's cool. Yes. And it's a 45 day to 60 day turnaround and the shoe also comes with their name sort of you know handwritten on the insole and the turnout was phenomenal wow yeah and again I think that's two things there's specialness to it because it's customized and there's also that delayed gratification there's an excitement that's going to build between now and when the shoe arrives and I think as a company it's up to us to keep stimulating that excitement and not let them go, oh, when is it going to be here? This is so annoying, right? So you have to make sure that you're managing that time delay properly. Absolutely. I was thinking that as well. And that must have been such such an exciting insight for you to get, to see the turnout for an event like that. Like that's a very powerful thing to internalize in terms of looking at you know, what to do in the future with other brands or, you know, what your customers resonate with. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yes, definitely. Customers want something that's special and unique. That's really what's resonated with us. Um, and, you know, when we were explaining to customers, they could customize a shoe, they could get their heel height, they could get a different fabrication. They were interested and intrigued. But as soon as you said, and you can get your name on the insole, ah. oh, their eyes just lit up. Really? Yeah. So it's really about that personal, those personal touches. Well, it speaks to how you know, what I might call old fashioned values hasn't really gone away the way sometimes I think we assume they have just because the world is spinning faster and there's more digital interfaces than there are ever before. Right. (laughs) And that's really how we approach the September. We take a very, you know, I don't want to call it old school, but it is. You're right. It's classic, timeless, classic, timeless (laughs) approach of, you know, the golden rule, right? We Mm. want to do unto others as, you know, they do Mm. unto us. And we want to treat people with respect. And, you know, that I think is, it's not complicated stuff, but it's Mm. disappeared in today's world. And so we sort of feel like if we take that back and we have real traditional values that are coupled with a phenomenal shopping experience that's digital, that should be a win. 
Now, if you were to, you know, put on your soothsayer hat and look into the future, do you, is there anything that you are anticipating you're going to need to prepare for? Do you have any sense of where retail is going to go next or what we need to, you know, kind of look towards? Yeah, I think, um, well, there's a few things. One, you know, is what's going to happen to all of these retail spaces? You know, you drive through Soho so in New York. true. And even in our, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, what's going to go in there? We can only have so many restaurants. So, you know, my husband and I are constantly talking about what, what how's the, the city, you know, scape going to change? So that's one thing that we think about. Um, but then the other, I think, in terms of retail, I think shopping will become shopping from anywhere on any device on any channel. So already we're seeing, you know, if you're on Pinterest, there's a buy button. If you're on Facebook, there's a buy button. So customers now don't have to be on your actual website. They can be wherever they are and see your product and buy it. And they can be on any device and buy it. They can be in a store and buy from you, you know, like it's really just going to be one big blurry way to shop, I think. Well, that is uh, exciting and overwhelming, I think. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Christine, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I have one final question for Mm -hmm. you. If you could wear one outfit for the rest of your life, climate not being a factor, Mm -hmm. what would it be? Oh, boy. Well, um, I would have to say... I'm most comfortable in a fabulous crisp white shirt, a pair of wide leg pants, maybe even a denim trouser style pant, and a fabulous pair of high heels. Love it. You look like a million bucks as well. Christine, thank you. thank you so much for the conversation and for being here today. If you're interested in checking out the September, it's what is the website address? TheSeptember.com. Just like the fashion magazine's big issue, TheSeptember.com. You can follow me at This Is Donna B. A big thank you to CAFA, our producing partner with this podcast. You can find out more about the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards at CAFA Award. That's C-A-F-A-W-A-R-D-S. Thanks to our wonderful sound engineer, Christian Ryan, and to our production coordinator, Margarita Brighton. You can follow Fashion Talks at Fashion Talks Podcast across all of our social uh, platforms. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to let us know what you think, uh, please email us hello at fashiontalks.ca and of course please if you enjoyed listening and I'm so so grateful that you did please tell your friends it really helps get the word out there Uh, give us a high five on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice and until next time this is Donna Bishop at Fashion Talks